Good morning. It's good to, to, to be here at the front again and to share with you, to open up uh, this first uh, chapter of a new series that we'll be doing. But um, hey. So, here's uh, the medium is the message. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, possibly not. I had heard it because I've worked in advertising before. And it's a phrase that, we've u- that we use. It was actually created, uh, invented in the 1960s by this chap called Marshall McLuhan, who was a communication, working in communications research at the time. And he said, the medium is the message. Now, when I say medium, of course, I'm not talking about spiritual mediums or fortune tellers. I mean the vehicle we use to communicate. I mean, the way we communicate, the mechanism we use to communicate can be more important than what we're actually saying. The medium is the message. The way we something, the manner, the way we say something, the manner in which we say it, the medium we choose is often as important as, as whatever we're saying. A couple of examples: if I was to, if I was to send a text message to someone saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I care about you, I'm thinking about you, that's good. But if I was to write them a letter to say I care about you, the medium somehow carries more weight for most of us, not for others, but for most of us. Or if, if uh, you were to send a, a bouquet of flowers to somebody who's struggling and without any words at all, that can be enough. That can be very powerful. The medium is the message. What you've done is, is as important as what, anything that you can say. In fact, sometimes the way we behave and what we do can be more important than anything we say. Uh, our behavior, our body language, the way we act, the way we are with people can say a lot more than any words. Sometimes the medium, our behavior, our manner, can even eclipse the message, whatever, whatever words we're using. Let me give you an example. And uh, notwithstanding, we're going to be talking about this on Wednesday. Uh, but notwithstanding that, let me go to our old friend Boris. Now, uh, you've probably seen that picture. I don't know if you've uh, watched Have I Got News For You, but they had a great interpretation of this picture. Apparently, Boris wasn't actually having a drink. What he'd done, he'd come in, picked up a glass angrily and said, Who does this glass belong to? Come on, own up. That's really what he was doing. No, but uh, I'm sure that... uh, Feel free to disagree with me on this. Many people will disagree with me, including Alison, my wife. She disagrees with me. But I will argue that the act of having the drink or having the cake or not having the cake or whatever he did, for me, that's not something for me to get angry about. You can disagree, and you may well be right. Some of you will say he knew the rules, he set the rules, he should have followed the rules, and that's a fair point. But for me, I, I, I could see myself doing the same thing and falling into the same trap. So I, don't, I wouldn't criticize him for that. For me, I think it was genuinely a unique, uh, unprecedented crisis in the country. The numbers were shocking, frightening, weren't they? A thousand people dying in one day, 1,500 people, almost 2,000 people died on one day, thousands more in the NHS trying to get treatment. And the, pre- oh, the eyes of the country were all on number 10. What are you going to do? The pressure was immense, intense. Uh, and they had to get us through this. So um, for me, anyway, it wasn't the whatever parting went on or didn't go on that's the problem. For me, it's what happened much more recently, what happened afterwards. Afterwards, we had excuse after excuse, an avoidance of truth, a lack of any genuine apology, of any acknowledgement of the whole truth. In the end, it didn't matter what Boris said anymore. His actions spoke louder than anything he could say. 
Whether you're most annoyed about what they did at number 10, or like me, about the fact that they never really admitted to it, what they did spoke more than anything that they, they could say. So his words afterwards, you know, people want us to get on with the job. People want us to get on with the job. Nobody was listening anymore. Because what you'd done, Boris, was, was too great. People will judge us by our lack of integrity, our lack of authenticity. As some people will as often say, actions speak louder than words. Or as our American friends would say, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And this idea of living with integrity, living with authenticity, comes through loud and clear to this small church in northern Greece. And so here's a couple of verses that Carol read to us, to the church at Thessalonica in the first chapter. Verses 7 to 8 in the NIV, Paul says to the Christians in this small church, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the whole area of northern Greece. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. Or I love the way that uh, Eugene Peterson puts it in his translation, the message of verse 8. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You're the message. I've, I've added the emphasis there. You are the message. You are the good news, guys. And so let's open up this idea that we ourselves are the message and we can be good news or bad news. That we are not so much bringing good news as being good news. That's what we're called to do. Who we are, what we do, is as important, often more important than anything that we can say. But first, let's take a quick step back because we're starting a new series today in this book, a six-week series. And let's briefly ask the question, who were the Thessalonians? Who were the Thessalonians? Here's a, a, a first-century map, and there's Thessalonica up there in the very north of Greece, uh, one of the, uh, a port city, a port town. And it's easy to imagine, isn't it, when we read these letters, that these New Testament places are nothing to do with us, that it's ancient history, it's disconnected from us. But actually, Thessalonica was not unlike a lot of cities we could find today in the world and in this country. A Roman city with a long history, built in a good location, good sea and transport links, a thriving economy. Everything was available to those who could afford it. Not unlike today. A free city with an independent government and worshipping many idols. In fact, Luke, in his book, Acts, and Acts tells us how the church started. In Acts 17, Luke gives us the background to this letter. And he explains that actually uh, Paul and his friends arrive in Thessalonica, Acts 17. Uh, and they start having discussions with people in the synagogue about this, new Je this King Jesus. Some believe Paul and a new church is born, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. Unfortunately, some of the Jews don't like Paul. And they start a riot saying, this Paul is preaching another king not Caesar, he's preaching another king called King Jesus. In the end, there's a riot, and Paul has to escape the city under cover of darkness. Now, it's too dangerous for him to go back, but he wants to know, how is the church doing? How are the believers doing? This new church, they're only young believers. How will they cope? How will they manage? But he can't go. So he sends Timothy, his co-worker. 
He sends Timothy, the young man, go and see how the church is doing in Thessalonica. You can get in. I can't. Go and tell me how they're doing. And Timothy brings back a very positive report. It's good news. Yes, the church in Thessalonica is suffering, but their faith, love, and hope are thriving. And they are missing Paul as much as he's missing them. And so Paul writes them this letter, this short letter, which is actually uh, the first book in the New Testament to have been written. It's the oldest part of the New Testament, which we call 1 Thessalonians. That's Paul's response. That's That's the background. And Paul's writing in this book about living faith, the faith that he's seen, the faith that he's heard of through Timothy, the living faith of the Thessalonians that affects not just what they say, but is affecting who they are. So that's where Paul's thoughts lie. That's we, where we find ourselves today. Let's look again at some of this authentic Christian living that Paul talks about in this letter. A couple more verses. Verse 3. The church in Thessalonica had a reputation. And verse 3, we see it. Paul says, We remember before our God and Father your work, actually evidence, produced by faith. Your labor, I can see what you're doing, produced by love. Your endurance, We can see that inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You paid careful attention to the way we lived among you, and you determined to live that way yourselves. In imitating us, you imitate the Master, you imitate Jesus. And Paul's saying basically that um, these uh, faith, hope, and love, which we talk about in church, they're not just things to pull out on a Sunday morning and wear to church. They're things that we need to clothe ourselves with every day of the week. Here is evidence of a church that shows its faith by its works, that shows its endurance by its hope, that shows its labor by its love. The the medium is the message. They are the message. And we see, again, the gospel is best carried in good relationships and loving service, not simply words. The way we live and show our faith is supremely important. People will notice how we are with them, before they listen to anything we've got to say. Living with integrity and authenticity, the church had become known for living in that part of the world with integrity and authenticity. So here's a question. What about us? What are we known for? What is our church known for? This church was known for things. What are we known for? I asked the question on Facebook, and I asked it in coffee morning as well. Got some good answers. Uh, The first answer I got was, well, we're known because, oh, I asked around, we're known because we're opposite the Shell Garage, which is great. (laughs) Let's celebrate. We are opposite the Shell Garage, and we are known for that. Well, let's just live with that. The second answer I got, which which I like better, is we're known for our coffee. I'll take that as a compliment. So we are known for our coffee, which is a good thing. But actually... Um, then uh, three people who are not Christians but have a relationship with our church. One of them comes every week to coffee morning. Uh, another one is our counselor, our local counselor, also gave us messages. Uh, two of them said, this, what we found at LBC is it's a friendly and welcoming place where I don't get religion rammed down my throat. Interesting comment. I don't get religion thrust at me aggressively insensitively. And Graham Gowland, who's our counselor, actually said quite a lot. He said, it's a very community-focused church, not just 
the immediate community, but you're focused on the whole of Lim. You're proactive. Your team members take on projects and reach outside the church. You're forward-looking. You're developing your building. Everyone in kids, with kids in Lim has probably been to your church. And he ends it by saying, I find your church a breath of fresh air, and I'm not religious. That's good. That's really good. I think our church is also known for uh, being the one with lots of children and families, someone said on Facebook. Uh, We're known for our toddler groups. We're known for our community groups during the week. We're known for our Ukrainian work, increasingly. We're known for the work we did in the pandemic. We didn't do these things to be known, but we let the light shine, and we become known for the right things. In uh, 2018, before the pandemic, we did a survey of our user groups. That's the 400 approximately people at the time who use our church who don't come to this church. Many of them don't go to any church. And they gave us a bunch of comments. Always receive a nice hello. Everybody warm and welcoming. Uh, XXX, I won't say who that is to embarrass them, but it's our chief welcoming officer, as I call her. Uh, She always has time to welcome people. Uh, Coming to church, all staff members are friendly and welcoming. Absolutely wonderful, very friendly. Great comments, positive comments. But you could uh, argue, and I would completely accept the point, but this is a kind of self-selecting audience in a way, isn't it? They're people who who already have an affinity towards us, already like us for some reason. What about the people who never come to Lynn Baptist Church? What about the people who never go to any church? What do they think of church? Well, I didn't do a survey, but I did have a quick look around. In general, on the internet, in general, what do non-churchgoers think of churchgoers in general? So this is anecdotal, it's very general, and it, it varies. So church can be known for being good at helping the poor, run, you know, running food banks came up quite a lot. We're known sometimes as being bigoted, being aggressive with our faith. Deluded by our atheist friends, they would say that. Uh, <clears throat> only 21% of non-Christians think of the church in a positive way in, in a survey. But one comment that came through a lot is the church is simply irrelevant, just not relevant. Uh, millennials think the local church is detached from real issues people face. And I think that's a key comment, you know, um, that this is just a hobby that we do. Like somebody else I know plays hockey, Somebody goes to the golf club or plays bridge and we come to church. And people see it as our hobby, that it's just it's not relevant to them, it's relevant to us. And I think that's a fair uh, accusation that people can make uh, about us. So, taking all of those comments then together, um, are we happy with what we're known for? Would Jesus be happy? with what we are known for, just as the, Thess- the church in Thessalonica was known for its work produced, by, for work produced from its faith, its labor prompted by love, its endurance inspired by hope. That's what they were known for. What would we like LBC to be known for? What would we be like to be known for in this community? I think that's a great question and one we will come back to later this year. Later this year, in October and November, we'll, we will be recasting the vision for LBC. Not changing the verses, we think they are from God, but asking in this new post-pandemic world, let's dream again. Let's dream new dreams. 
Where is God taking us as a church? And I think one good question, one question is, how would we like to be known? Thessalonica uh, had a great and impactful reputation that flowed from all that God has done. So what would we like to be known for? I'd like us to be known for as being caring, compassionate, friendly, welcoming, and having good news, having something to say, something that is relevant to real life, not just a hobby for weird religious people. Uh, Reputations, as we see in Thessalonica, are built by actions, and they must be built over a long period of time. So let me talk about a related item. Because we have outside a new sign. If you've come to church this morning, you'll have seen it. I hope you won't have missed it. If you're online, well, there's a picture of it. There's going to be a canopy and other stuff to match, but the sign is there today. And the phrasing says, building community, exploring faith. Building community, exploring faith. Two phrases of two words, really simple, really hard to forget. Very simple, that's deliberate. Very memorable, very non-threatening, not aggressive. Uh, Someone said on Facebook, intriguing, invitational. What does it mean to explore faith? We could have filled it with holy language that only we understand. We could have done that very easily. What's the point? We're just talking to ourselves. We could have answered questions that nobody's asking. What's the point? So we put something out there that's invitational, relevant, non-threatening. Let's look at those two words. Building community. What does that mean? I would like us to be known as a church that is deeply involved, deeply concerned about the communities around us. A church that fosters community, that encourages a sense of abundant life, which is the phrase I've used for the communities in this building here before. We are trying to encourage abundant life. What about exploring faith? Our congregation, online and on-site, has something that we want that's here to discover, exploring faith. Here's a place where you can explore, but you won't get it rammed down your throat, as those people said. We don't feel it's being rammed down our throat. But where you should be invited to explore. We don't just want to do the, the, the good works bit. We want to go beyond that. You should be invited and even we, look at, think about exploring faith for in, in, our, in our own lives, in our own context. Even we, people who've discovered God, are still exploring God. That's a lifelong task, an, an immensely encouraging and exciting job that we have to explore God ever deeper, ever more. We're still doing that. So if we're serious about these statements, we need to carefully consider what we need to do to make them real. And we will come back to it later this year. So last question. What are you known for? What are you known for? What am I known for? In our work, in our street, in our family, what are we known for? Inevitably, uh, the church is just a collection of individuals so that inevitably the church's reputation will be closely tied to our individual reputations. So what do people think of us in our street, in our family? Do people know that we're Christians? And if they do, is that a good thing? Or not a good thing? The medium is the message. We are the medium. It's no good saying we believe one thing, but then acting a different way. 
John Stott, in commenting on this passage, says, The church which passes on the gospel must embody the gospel. The church which passes on the gospel must embody the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a, a theologian, a German theologian, speaking and writing during the war, he stood up to the Nazis during the war in Germany, and he said, Your life as a Christian should cause non-believers to question their unbelief. Your life as a Christian should cause non-believers to question their unbelief. What a challenging statement for us. Love, hope, and faith in Thessalonica made things happen. They weren't just things that were internal attributes that people had. Work produced Work produced from their faith, labor prompted by their love, endurance inspired by their hope. We must excel also in our integrity and authenticity. I love C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer. I love his definition of integrity. Having integrity, he said, means doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Doing the right thing when nobody's looking. What a great definition from C.S. Lewis. And yes, yes, words at the right time. We need to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us the reason for the hope that's in us, as Peter says. But we do it with gentleness and respect at the right time. How do we want to, know, to be known, I think, is a great question to ask. Okay, so let me um, just summarize what we've said today, the medium is the message. Jesus was the medium. And Jesus was the message. Jesus was God's, God's medium, God's vehicle, God's instrument to communicate to humans. And Jesus was the message. I would say uh, who Jesus was and how he acted, particularly towards those on the margins, had a, had, had a greater message than anything he even said. So we ourselves, it's a hard act to follow, Jesus, but we ourselves are called to imitate Jesus. We ourselves are the message, which means we need to think of ourselves as news, as good news. And what does that mean? People will get more idea of the gospel from how we are, how we behave towards them, than anything we might say. Authentic Christian living doesn't mean we live perfectly by any means, because we won't. But it means we are ready to honestly own up to our failures when they happen. And we can start today imitating Jesus, even in the little things, building a reputation for ourselves, for our church. I'm going to end with a, a story which, I actually told you this story before, uh, on the first time I preached here, on the 30th of October 2017. So if you remember it, great. If you don't, that's fine as well. And uh, it's a true story, told by Tony Campolo, and... Um, uh, a homeless alcoholic called Joe, he's called Joe Real Guy, was miraculously converted at a Bowery Street mission in Chicago. He was miraculously converted and went into this men's hostel. Joe, after he was converted, was a transformed character. You wouldn't recognize the guy who sat in the gutter injecting himself, swigging out of a bottle. You wouldn't recognize him. Joe became the salt and light of that place. There was nothing... No task that he wouldn't do. 
No ta- other people found the tasks too dirty, too disgusting. Joe did them with a, with a grateful heart. He would wipe up the vomit that had been left by men in the corridors. He would clean the toilets that men had left in a mess carelessly. He would take the men from the street and feed them when they couldn't feed themselves. He would tuck them into bed at night when they were too drunk to, to actually even get into bed. That was Joe. Now, one night at the e- evening uh, address, the evening message, the uh, director of the mission was giving his message to an audience of, uh, of men who were all sullen. They were sat there with their heads down. Some of them were snoring, a little bit like you guys. They were all sat there, basically not listening. But one guy sat at the back who'd come in recently. He'd heard. He was listening. And when the director of the, of the mission said, if you want to come up and pray, come up, he went to the front. He'd only been there a few days. And he started praying in the only way he knew how. And he started praying out aloud and he said, Oh God, will you make me more like Joe? Please God, I want to be like Joe. Oh God, make me more like Joe. Please make me like Joe. And the director was quite disturbed because he was, he was messing the, the service up. And he was even praying. It wasn't, wasn't a very good prayer either. So the director came up to this old drunk and tapped him on the shoulder and said, I think you mean, make me more like Jesus. And this old alcoholic looked up with a quizzical expression in his eyes and he said, is Jesus like Joe? You may be the only Jesus that people will ever meet. We in this church may be the only Jesus that people will ever encounter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, today that we do have a faith in you. But Lord, we want our faith to be authentic, to be real, to be on the street, in our families, in our workplaces. Authentic Christian living as we get into this book, Lord, further and further in these next weeks, we pray, Lord, help us, Lord, to live real, authentic lives that we should be the good news that people, that you want people to see and to hear. That we want, Lord, our work to be produced by faith. We want our labor to be prompted by love, Lord. We want our endurance to be inspired by our hope in you. Help us, Lord, even in the small ways, even this week, even today, to be imitators of Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Danny.